perhaps Sarah Josepha Hale could be the one to help America see that it is precisely life's ephemeral nature that can make one all the more grateful for blessings that are bestowed. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 31, the founder of Thanksgiving and the Thanksgiving offering. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Let us speak of Sarah Josepha Hale, born Sarah Buell after the Revolutionary War in New Hampshire, to parents who believed in educating their daughters. She developed a talent and passion for writing. As a young woman, she lost her mother and siblings, and then met a man by the name of David Hale. They were married in 1813, had four children over less than a decade, and as she was pregnant with their fifth child, David caught pneumonia and died. She would, for the rest of her life, continue to wear black in mourning for the man she had loved and lost. One would not have expected that a woman who experienced so much sorrow would be known for great gratitude. But Hale is actually the mother of modern American Thanksgiving, and her story, in a fascinating way, teaches us a great deal about the original biblical Thanksgiving meal. We have already seen how the details of the ritual known as korban shlamim, or peace offering, allow for the forging of fellowship in a ritual meal. Before we turn to the unique korban of Thanksgiving, we must first turn to another sort of offering altogether. Chapter 2 of Leviticus describes what is known as the mincha, best rendered as a meal offering. Rather than an animal, what is brought is flour, mixed with oil and frankincense, presented in raw, baked, or fried forms. The priest would take a fistful from the offering, known as a kometz, place it on the altar, and the rest the priests themselves would eat in the tabernacle courtyard. What is of interest for our discussion is what is prohibited. Verse 11. No meal offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be leavened, for no starter nor honey shall be offered by fire unto the Lord. No leavened bread, then, is allowed on the altar, in the tabernacle or the temple, and therefore no seor, the leavening agent known as starter, can be added to the mincha, to the meal offering. What this means is that just as Jews abstained from leavened bread on Passover, the altar was, in a sense, kosher for Passover all year round. Some years ago, there was an amusing story about a presidential entourage arriving in Israel from America right before Passover, only to discover that there was no bread to be had. Thus, the Times of Israel reported, quote, President Barack Obama is scheduled to land in Israel the week before the Jewish holiday of Passover, presenting his staff with a dietary difficulty. Their hotel, the King David in Jerusalem, will already be kosher for Passover, so they won't be allowed to eat bread or other foods forbidden during the week-long festival. That means pasta, pizza, and all kinds of other baked goods will be unavailable to all guests, superpower leaders included, and they won't be permitted to sneak forbidden foods into the premises either, end quote. Now, knowing the less than delicious items that are usually eaten on Passover, one can just see it. Mr. President, I'm sorry, we can't make you a sandwich. How about a nice macaroon? But the truth is that perhaps a lack of leaven is the right way to welcome a head of state. After all, ladies and gentlemen, Here, in Leviticus, we are told that God himself, king of kings, specifically orders that his altar be leaven-free. But why? Why should leavened bread be kept away from the fire of God? 
One possibility is that, as we have discussed, leavened bread is an Egyptian invention, and therefore perhaps a reminder of the pagan enslavers of Israel. Another explanation can be found in the fact that in the presence of God, all worship must be done with alacrity, and leavened bread requires letting the dough just sit there and rise. Remember, matzah, unleavened bread, came into being at the Exodus because lo yachlulihit mamea, the Israelites could not delay. And no delay is ever allowed in the presence of the Almighty. Time is too precious. Every instant before God is a gift. A joke I've heard describes a Harvard law professor who is grading exams, and the professor sees that on one page of the booklet, a student wrote, Professor, if I had one hour left to live, I'd want to spend that hour sitting in your class. And the professor flattered turned the page, and he saw that the student further wrote, Because, Professor, an hour in your class feels like an eternity. Now, this is funny, but also profound, because time is so precious to Judaism that, as Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik once put it, quote, Jews cherish the fleeting moment as if it represented eternity, end quote. The word for leavened bread, chametz, appears in rabbinic discussions of delay. Mitzvah ha al say the sages, meaning, when the opportunity for a good deed presents itself, do not let it pass itself by. A ban on chametz, leavened bread, then, on the altar, might mark the attitude to time one must take in the tabernacle. Yet these explanations, ladies and gentlemen, are, I believe, insufficient. Recall that along with the leavening agents, another ingredient is also outlawed. Here is the verse in Leviticus again. For no seor, starter, nor honey shall be offered upon the fire unto the Lord. Honey here is date honey. That is not a leavening agent. Why then is it forbidden as an ingredient in a meal offering, a flour offering? Rabbi Yoel bin Nun offers an interesting answer. Matzah, as we mentioned earlier, is bread that has not been allowed to rise, not been allowed to achieve its fullest and most complete end. As such, the offering of an unleavened flour product is an expression of humility, and that explains why honey is banned as well. He puts it this way, quote, The offering that a person brings upon the altar is, like prayer, an expression of man standing before God, filled with a sense of his own lowliness and insignificance, and with a sense of how beholden and dependent he is on God. A person cannot stand before the altar with a proud sense of wealth that declares his independent stature, as in the verse, My strength and the might of my hand have achieved all of this valor. A sacrifice offered with such a feeling would be an act of impudence, of pride and arrogance one of the most serious transgressions in man's relationship with God. For this reason, you shall not burn any leaven nor any honey, the symbols of wealth and the sense of satiety, in an offering of God. End quote. For Rabbi Binun, unleavened bread, and bread that is devoid of a special sweetener, like honey, is a humble declaration of our dependence on the divine. This, then, is perhaps why chametz, leavened flour, is banned on God's altar. Let us now turn to another offering, delineated in chapter 7, known as a korban todah, an offering of thanksgiving. For Jewish tradition, it is brought by one who has emerged from being mired in the midst of crisis, released from prison, cured from disease, returned from a dangerous journey. The thanksgiving offering is a shlamim, which is eaten 
as we discussed yesterday, but here with an important difference. Along with the animal, 40 loaves of bread are also brought and consumed during the Thanksgiving meal. Here are the first 30. Verse 12. If he offer it for a Thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the korban of Thanksgiving matzah loaves mingled with oil, matzah wafer spread with oil, and matzot mingled with oil of fine flour soaked. What is described is three types of unleavened bread, some soft, some wafer-like, 30 total, joined to the animal offering. To all this is added one more type of bread. Verse 13. Besides the loaves, he shall offer for his offering leavened bread with the korban of thanksgiving of his peace offerings. Thus, leavened bread, chametz, ten loaves, not offered on the altar but brought to the tabernacle, is also part of the thanksgiving ritual and eaten in the meal. This is how thanksgiving took place in temple times. An animal offering would be brought along with 40 loaves, four types of bread, one loaf of each type goes to the priest, and the rest, 36 loaves, are consumed with the meat at the Thanksgiving meal. The question, ladies and gentlemen, is obvious. Why is chametz, leavened bread, allowed? True, it is not offered on the altar, but if non-leavened bread is so central to temple rite, then why does a Thanksgiving celebration involve chametz? Here again, Rabbi Ben-Nun offers an answer. If matzah is bread that has not reached an intended state, the chametz represents the resolution of one's crisis, the reason for why one expresses gratitude. He writes, quote, An offering of thanksgiving is brought by a person who faced some danger or predicament and was delivered from it. Therefore, when he is saved, it is indeed proper that his offering include both chametz loaves and matzot. The matzot symbolized the trouble that he was in, the bitter cry that he uttered, and the process of redemption from that predicament to an open space of relief. The chametz represents the completion of his deliverance and his current state of tranquility. It is an expression of reaching the end of this particular road, the attainment of peace and satisfaction. End quote. This, then, is the spiritual symbolism of the culinary diversity on display in a Thanksgiving celebration. Matzah is known in the Bible as lechem oni, poor bread or bread of affliction. The 30 matzot thus represents, first and foremost, the moment of distress. The 10 leaven loaves thus represent the conclusion of the salvation for which gratitude is given. But if this is so, ladies and gentlemen, why then a multitude of matzahs? Should not the leavened and unleavened bread be equal? Why so many symbols of crisis? Rabbi Benun has his own thoughts, but in suggesting an answer, I'd like to turn back to Sarah Josepha Hale. And in telling her story throughout this talk, I'm drawing on a book by Denise Kiernan. We gather together, a nation divided, a president in turmoil, and a historic campaign to embrace gratitude and grace. Let us continue the story of this remarkable woman. Seeking to support her family with her writing, Hale published in 1827 an anti-slavery novel named Northwood, which saw real success in the United States and even overseas. Long before Thanksgiving was a national holiday, it was marked as a ritual in the New England states. And Hale brought such a celebration to life in her novel. She began to lobby presidents to declare just such a Thanksgiving at the federal level. And then the Civil War began, marked by horrific death. It was after Gettysburg in 1863 
that she wrote to Lincoln to lobby for her vision of a day of gratitude. Now, one might have expected the president to think her insane. Thanksgiving in 1863, when more Americans had been lost than ever before? And yet, when one thinks about it, a somewhat similar question could be asked about the individual life of Sarah Josepha Hale, the woman who is lobbying for Thanksgiving. After all, here we have a woman who wears mourning clothes for her husband, marking the fragile nature of life. And it is this very woman who places gratitude at the apex of her aspirations. Perhaps Sarah Josepha Hale could be the one to help America see that it is precisely life's ephemeral nature that can make one all the more grateful for blessings that are bestowed. And Hale and Lincoln found the president after her own heart. Lincoln declared the last Thursday in November to be a national Thanksgiving day. Listen to parts of Lincoln's proclamation. Quote, the year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and even soften the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and provoke their aggressions, peace has been preserved with all nations, order has been maintained, the laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere, except in the theater of military conflict. While that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union, needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. Population has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp the siege, and the battlefield. Lincoln concluded, No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. Lincoln thus applies the lessons of Hale's life to America writ large. The overwhelming challenges America faced, he argues, does not do away with gratitude, but enhances it. America now understands, Lincoln is saying, how uncertain life is, and therefore how life should be cherished. Americans suddenly realize how fragile their national coexistence is, but that, Lincoln is saying, should make Americans more grateful that outside the battlefield, society has not fallen apart and has in fact experienced blessings. Lincoln implicitly says that the war is a punishment for sin, for the sin of slavery. But this, he adds, should also make Americans grateful for the, quote, gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy, end quote. Lincoln made clear that the terrible challenges America faced was not intention with their gratitude. It was the very foundation of that gratitude. Thus does the national thanksgiving that America knows come into being through Lincoln's declaration. The title of Kiernan's book, We Gather Together, is of course taken from the hymn that ultimately became affiliated with Thanksgiving in America. The truth is that the original biblical Thanksgiving is all about gathering together. In a fascinating addition 
to the usual ritual of the shlamim, the peace offering. Leviticus stresses that whereas usually the offering can be eaten through the next day, the Thanksgiving feast must conclude by the dawn after it was first begun. Leviticus 7.15 And the meat of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for Thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day that it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. As many note, the abundance of bread brought with the offering of thanksgiving and the very short time given to consume the korban ensures that one will not eat alone, but will instead gather together anyone around in Jerusalem to partake in this thanksgiving feast and thereby together give gratitude to God. This is the original biblical thanksgiving meal. Serve matzah as a symbol of the crisis and chametz as a symbol of the ultimate resolution of that crisis. But the abundance of matzah at this meal is meant perhaps to mark the fact that life is filled with crises and that we celebrate God's blessings all the same. Kiernan concludes her book on Hale with the following reflection. Quote, The uninterrupted string of annual Thanksgiving celebrations that began nearly 160 years ago thanks to Hale's relentless efforts and Lincoln's recognition of her vision, has since changed in new and complex ways. But we are poised to manifest this holiday, rooted in thanks and encourage it to evolve once again. What has become such an integral part of American culture should continue to grow to reflect that culture and the best parts of itself. Appreciation, inclusion, compassion, celebration, charity. Let today begin a revolution of gratitude and grace, end quote. Indeed, and one might add that these virtues, along with humility and faith, are what the Korban Todah is all about. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.